because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless, wild living, and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. The end of all things is near, therefore be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks with the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. This is a passage about repentance, and so we're going to talk about uh, repentant priests. First, our need for repentance, our need for repentance. And second, the hope of repentance. And then the gift of repentance. And let me pray for us. Uh, Father, one thing that Abby just read from this passage that Peter spoke is that everything that we do would bring glory to you through Jesus Christ. That has been our prayer. It's our desire every Wednesday when we gather together. But it's the specific thing that I ask you for now, that you would show yourself so beautiful and so good and so real, that you would show yourself as the helper that you are, that you would show yourself near, that you would show yourself as the ultimate giver, even as we think about last week and Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. I pray that through Jesus, you would show yourself that way that you would warm our hearts, that you would give us even a new gift of repentance tonight, that you would draw us back to yourself, that we would be drawn by your beauty and your love and your kindness. In him, we pray it in his name. Amen. Well, I want to jump right into uh, what Abby just read, and we'll kind of hit different parts of this um, over the next few minutes uh, as we go. But that first thing I said I wanted to talk to you about um, from this passage is our need of repentance our need of change, our need of course correction, radical course correction, regular course correction. Our need of repentance really arises from the fact that following Jesus is an all or nothing endeavor. Because you can't half follow somebody. There's no, there's no half following somebody. There's no half in, half out relationship with God. And if you think about it, just common sense, there's no half following anybody. If I was to say to you after this service, um, hey, come here real quick, follow me to my car. I got something to show you. You only have a few options. You can, you can follow me, and if you do, you're going to have to leave the people that you're talking to and the place that you were, and you're going to have to move yourself to a new place. You're going to have to go with me. All of you has to go. <laughs> I'll be with you in spirit. No, you've got to go with me. 
Or you've got to be like, hey, I'm actually, I got to go study tonight, maybe another time, and you're going to stay where you are, or you're going to go a different direction. But all of you is going to do something. All of you is going to go with me. All of you is going to dig your heels in. All of you is going to stay put. There's one of you. There's one of God. And so following him and loving him in relationship with him is an all or nothing situation. Which means drifting from him or walking away from him is also an all or nothing situation. There's no half drifting, half walking away from him. It's either all in or all out. Um, you've probably heard, if you have any kind of a church background, you've probably heard Jesus who, who said pretty famously, no one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. And it's kind of common sense. You've got one heart that you can give. You've got one body that you can follow somebody with. You can't have two masters. One of them is going to win out and win your allegiance. And therefore, win your, um, your motivation to follow them. So maybe this makes sense. It's an important point to get. It's an all or nothing endeavor, but maybe it makes sense to you. But here's where the problem comes in, and here's where this stuff gets super tricky for us. And I would say it gets super tricky for us for two reasons. And the first reason is this. The alignment of our hearts is out of whack. Our desires are out of whack. They're out of alignment. They veer towards evil human desires. That's what Peter says in verse 2. As a result, these people don't live their earthly... Or, uh, he's, he's saying repentance kind of frees us from this pull towards these evil human desires, but our hearts, our desires are pulled in that way because they're misaligned. I don't know if the alignment of your car has ever been out of whack, but um, Anna and I bought a used car about six or seven years ago, and great car, but the alignment was crazy out. And just like driving down the interstate, if you took your hands off the wheel just for a second, it would like pull hard to the right. Not that little like slow veer, it was like boom. So we had to kind of steer back into the road just to go straight. It was so misaligned, there was this powerful pull that if you didn't have your hands locked onto the wheel, it would pull you off the road. And this passage is, is Peter is asking you to consider the fact that your desires are misaligned. All of ours are. There's that strong pull off the road. Uh, away from the Lord. Here's some examples of what I'm talking about. Isn't it so easy to care so much about what you think your body looks like in the mirror and not what God says about you, about the person in the mirror? Remember we talked about that week one or week two of this whole series? Isn't it so easy to just effortlessly look into that and the narrative comes? Our desires are pulled hard. Uh, away from the Lord. Doesn't revenge feel so effortless? And actually thinking through um, gracious confrontation feels so uphill? Our desires are misaligned. They're out of whack. The dopamine release that comes with being way, way, way busy or hyperproductive, isn't that so much more exhilarating 
then periodically slowing down and refusing to go along with the rat race and finding what, what comes out of your heart and what out of your mind when you just sit with your God. Our hearts are out of alignment. Our desires are out of alignment. So it feels so eager some nights to kind of get back home just to scroll, 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 scroll. And it can feel so off-putting and ugh, like, who's going to do that? To think about something like uh, praying for friends that over the course of the day, you've, you've bumped into their needs. You've realized ways that they're struggling. One can seem so much more appealing than the other. Feel the pull, feel the pull of a heart out of alignment, of desires out of alignment. It shows us our, our need of repentance. And it shows us, too, that these things that Peter's talking about in this passage aren't just behavior issues. It's not like, uh, I mean, we're going to talk about this in a minute. He's talking about some high-caliber stuff uh, in, in some of the behaviors that he's mentioning. But it's not like uh, we're the kind of people who just, like, accidentally find ourselves in these situations. Like, oops, I did it again. We wanted to do it. That's why it keeps happening. It's become a master. It has a pull on us. We love it. We have a trust relationship with it. If I do this, I'm going to get this result. And I like that result. So I'm going to keep giving myself to it. So it's a desire issue. And this is why, we're going to unpack this a little bit more, but this is why Peter says down in verse 7, in, in, other, in, in essence, Peter's saying, hold your hands tightly on the wheel because your heart is so easily pulled, your desires are so easily and strongly pulled off the road. Hold that wheel. Stay alert. Be sober, he says, verse 7. That's him alluding to all these things that we've been talking about. There's going to have to be some intentionality and some effort and some elbow grease in bending back these desires away from where they're pulled back onto the road like I had to kind of steer into the road aggressively just to go straight. So our hearts and our desires um, can veer towards these dark human desires that Peter talks about. So hopefully it's making a little bit more sense to you about how slippery this stuff gets with us. It's not as simple as saying, okay, I can't serve two masters, so just go serve Jesus. Be all in with Jesus. This can't be the locker room. Come on, y'all. Be all in with the Lord. Something much more complicated going on inside of us, and Peter doesn't do that either. The second reason that this is so tricky for us and so hard for us, um, and I think it, our need is even more profound, is um, we have commitment issues. Uh, I have commitment issues. I bet you do too. But think about yours. I'll try to stir your imagination. We have commitment issues um, because to follow Jesus, like I said, is to be all in with him, which means you're leaving other things. You're closing down other options. You're saying no to a lot to leave where you are and to go with him and to be open to him and available to him and yielded and surrendered to him. To say yes to him is to say no to everything else mastering you. Um, and that's, that's the commitment. Therein lies the commitment is we're very well aware of the exit that we're being asked to make from so many other things. 
The fear of missing out is part of that. If I say afterwards, like, let's say you're a graduating senior. This is one of your last large groups, and there's someone that you're like, I'm going to, we we've been missing each other the past few weeks. We're going to connect after large group, and I come to you, and I don't tell you why, but I'm like, hey, come follow me to my car. I need to show you something, or I need to talk to you about something. You're going to feel that pull because of what you're missing out on, what you know you're losing. Especially if I haven't told you what I want to talk to you about or why it's important. We don't like loss. We like having it all, right? I'm there. We like having it all. We're not either or people. We're both and kind of people. We want to make commitments, but also keep the other options open, right? That's what we kind of see as life-giving. It's what we see as optimal. And I think the evidence is in how we live our lives. I think the reason why me and a lot of y'all might be so busy and hyperactive is we don't know how to be all in with the things that are truly important. And we really do think that we can be all in and fully present in a lot of different places at the same time. To choose one option, to choose one community, to choose one role, to choose one set of roommates is to say no to other communities, other roles, other availability that you might have had to give away, other people to live with. And I'm going to label that the fear of death. It's the fear of the death of options. It's the fear of the death of getting to do it all, of getting to taste a little bit of everything. So not literal fear of death, but the fear of missing out kind of fear of death, the fear of not getting every experience. So I felt this fear um, pretty intensely a couple of times in my life. I can remember it. I can remember wrestling with this fear of commitment. And no surprise here, um, it, Anna just walked in the door. Just in time, babe, for this illustration. <laughs> I was 30 years old. I was 30 years old when Anna and I got married. So I had been a bachelor for a long time. And my entirety of my 20s was spontaneous. I was always available, hang out with whoever, whenever, do whatever I want. And Anna had that too. Um, she lived out in Colorado while we were dating. She had a whole life out there and a lot of independence and a lot of ability to do whatever she wanted to do. And so I think both of us were wrestling with some of the loss and the cost of the commitment that came with marriage. I felt it again um, right before my oldest was born, Eli, right before we became parents. And I had friends kind of saying that stuff. You know, some people will say stuff like, I hate this, I hate this, and I'll, you'll see why in just a second when people say, are you getting married? And like the bachelor party, the bachelorette, they're like, you know, get ready to not have a life or get ready to have to run everything by the other person to see if you can do everything. Or we talk about ball and chain, the other person, or you're not going to have your freedom anymore. And, they, and my friends would say similar stuff about being a parent. They would build it up about how much loss it was. And so I was understandably nervous about that. I was like, I'm about to lose my life, my weekends, any margin, my sleep. Anna especially felt that. So we're, we're getting closer to his birth, and we're starting to grapple with the cost of that commitment. And because I'd never been married before, and because I'd never had kids before Eli was born, we didn't know the other side. But now I do. There's a, there's a singer and songwriter named Andrew Peterson. Um, 
He's written a couple of the songs that we sing up here, and he wrote a song about this too. He struggled with that stuff as well. Uh, he, he wrote a song called I'm a Family Man, and it was a song basically that came out of um, his aversion to ever wanting the life where he's like in a situation where a minivan is his main mode of transportation, and he's like using his vacations to like go to Disneyland with the kids, and he's like, you know, always in his house, never out doing fun stuff. That was such a, just, uh, he resisted that idea in his younger years. He, he, he saw it as a death of everything that he loved and cherished until he experienced the other side of it. We're going to call that resurrection on the other side of death. Here's the song that he wrote, just a few stanzas for, from it. He said, I'm a family man. I traded in my Mustang for a minivan. This is not what I was headed for when I began. This was not my plan, but I'm a family man. But everything I had to lose came back a thousand times in you. He's talking about his wife. And you fill me up with love, and you fill me up with love. And you help me stand. And I don't remember anymore who I even was before. So I'm saving my vacation time for Disneyland. This is not what I was headed for when I began. This was not my plan, but it's so much better than. And I'll tell you some stories in a little bit of how I can confirm that. But I want you to see the essence of what he wrote that song about and what I'm trying to show you from this passage. That song captures the life that exists on the other side of death. The joy that exists that lives on the other side of loss. The safety and security that grow deep and really take a hold of you that's on the other side of giving up freedom. Once all those other options that you were trying to keep alive and open finally got shut down, the freedom that existed. And you and I both know the little secret is those options are plaguing you, aren't they? Don't you want someone to just decide the big decisions for you? To do away with all the options and say, choose C, go that way, take that job. Resurrection on the other side of death, joy on the other side of loss, security on the other side of a loss of freedom. That's what people who have committed or are learning to commit are learning to be all in, whether it's with a marriage or with parenting or with a job or with a role that they've taken on. They experience freedom and life and joy on the other side of that, and they experience a very clear mission as well. And this is what I was talking about earlier when I said we're gonna, this is a passage about the hope that repentance brings. Repentance, these course corrections, these res, us responding to a God who's calling us to come back, help us embrace these little deaths that God is calling us to daily, daily experience. These little deaths towards sin, towards these dark desires that I was talking about earlier. It helps us to recognize them, to grieve their presence, and to put them to death, to steer away from them. Instead of kind of that immature posture of heart that's just like, I'm out for a joy ride. Who said anything about steering? The car's just supposed to drive itself. This path of repentance, this process of repentance and course correction and coming back to the Lord repeatedly as we veer off into the shoulder and have to bring it back onto the road, opens you up to resurrection life 
It helps you pass through the loss so that you can even begin to experience the other side and taste these true, deep, deep kind of things. And this is what first, uh, Peter is um, talking about in verse 1. When he, when he talks about this, he's, he's rooting this in Jesus, but then he shifts it to us. And he says, whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. And then he adds on to that, arm yourselves. Y'all, arm yourselves with that attitude that Jesus had. Whoever, is, whoever has suffered in the flesh is done with sin. He doesn't mean that they don't, they're not pulled towards those desires anymore. And it doesn't mean that they don't veer off towards those desires. It doesn't mean that they don't sin anymore. It means that there's been a fundamental pivot in their heart. Kind of the way, like, I'm not resisting the commitment of marriage anymore. I love it. I'm not resisting the loss that I've experienced as a dad, the loss of my weekends and the loss of my free time and my margin and mental sanity sometimes because I wouldn't trade it for the world. Does that mean I'm the perfect dad or the perfect husband? That I never have to make course corrections? Absolutely not. That's not what Peter's saying. But I'm done with the resistance of trying to get out of that life. I'm done trying to resist the deaths that marriage calls for me, that fatherhood calls for me. And now the struggle is trying to embrace those deaths and to see them as good because I know good and well in experience what lies on the other side. Remember, this is the apostle Peter who's writing these words. Peter was called by Jesus one day. Peter, come and follow me. I've always wondered, how were the apostles, for those who were called and it said they dropped their nets and they left everything and they followed Jesus, I'm like, I don't, how does that happen? If, if someone walked in the door and said, Ben, follow me, I'm at least going to get a name and be like, who are you and what do you want to do? I would imagine that Jesus had a relationship with all these guys for a while. They had seen enough, heard enough, known enough, experienced enough from him that when he finally issued that climactic call, leave it all. And come be with me. They were prepared. They trusted him. They knew him. They loved him enough to leave where they were. And to relocate. And to live a life with him. So that's the Peter who's writing this thing. And it's the Peter who heard tons of times Jesus say to him and other people. If anyone would follow me. Let him deny himself. Let her take up her cross and follow me. For whoever would try to save his life will lose their life. But whoever loses her life for my sake will find it. You hear the paradox? You hear, you hear the paradox of resurrection comes on the other side of death. Joy comes on the other side of loss. Freedom comes on the other side of commitment. Truly finding yourself is a result of denying yourself and being about somebody else and other people. What a countercultural claim. That truly finding yourself is not this further and further implosion into yourself of self-discovery and self-thought and, and all the but actually is being turned outside of yourself towards other people. And picking up your cross and following Jesus. Dietrich Bonhoeffer is a name some of you might know. He was a pastor in Germany. Um, right during the beginning of uh, the Nazi regime. And he was ultimately put in a concentration camp and, and martyred for his faith. 
and for standing up for uh, the Jews and preaching the gospel, but he said this, the cross is laid on every Christian. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And it may be a death like that of the first disciples who had to leave home and work to follow him, or it might be a death like Luther's who had to leave the monastery and go out into the world. But it is the same death every time. Death in Jesus Christ, the death of the old man at the call of Jesus. Crucifixion, resurrection, death, and life. Loss and gain. That's the pattern of God in the flesh. It's the pattern of your Savior. It's the pattern of Jesus Christ. And it's the pattern of all who follow him and walk with him and belong to him and have been made alive in him. That's the tension that I was wrestling with before my wedding day, before Eli's birth, before I took my first real job. I felt the loss. And now, at least in a few areas of my life, I can tell you about the gain. And I felt it with singleness, too. I was 22. I'd graduated Georgia. And I didn't know what I was going to do with my life. And um, I I wrestled to embrace the, the death that felt like singleness in that season of my life. And all my friends are pairing up and getting married. And here's Ben. But the grace God gave me to embrace that little death and own it led to resurrection life on the other side of that. And I don't share these stories to, um, to boast at all. I don't have much to boast about in my life. Um, but I, I share this with you to show you how God cares for those who lay down their lives and deny themselves. The old men that I got to have breakfast with as a single guy who was always available, always could do spontaneity at the drop of a hat, could meet up with people and the wisdom that I gleaned from them. The widows that I got to care for and take care of their yard and seminary with my roommates getting to see the burden that it lifted off their shoulders, the availability to be there with a friend who's struggling at the drop of a hat and not have to schedule it two weeks out was beautiful. And it was life. And it was on the other side of embracing that death. You can't be available to that life when you're still wrestling and resisting that death. Still kind of, you know, in my house, bemoaning my calling in life or my situation in life or my circumstances in life, just fighting with God, wishing that it was some other way. But what if he is inviting you, like Bonhoeffer said, to the end of yourself, to the denial of yourself so that you're finally useful and fruitful and usable in his service and available to him? It occurred to me Sunday morning during the Easter service, my wife went to the restroom during the service and there were some women in there, some who have lost little babies, some whose husbands have left them. Talk about a song and this is not the life that I had planned. And they're in the bathroom with tears in their eyes because Easter, as you all would say, hits different for them. Because Easter only comes out of death. The only context of resurrection life is death. Little funerals of stuff you laid down. Funerals of people. Resurrection hope grows out of the soil of a heart torn in two. And loss. What other way could it be? For some of you, you are suffering in the flesh for the sake of Jesus. There are desires that feel very natural to you. You didn't ask for them to be there. They impose themselves on you. They intrude on your mind. 
sexual desires or mental thoughts or other things that you feel or, or trauma that you cannot get out of your mind and it triggers you. And you are suffering in the flesh because you know the path of life is not indulging and veering off the road. And God has given you the grace of maturity where you realize steering and sobriety and being alert, like Peter says, is required. And you've experienced the presence of Jesus in your struggle. You know his goodness. And you've also experienced distance from him when you veered off, when you've given in, when you've indulged in. You do not want that life. You're not in open opposition to him anymore because you know he's a good master. Your struggle with your sin is that you want to stop. That you want more of him. Hear Jesus see you in this passage. Hear him honor you. Hear him cheer you on and say, you're getting it. You're getting it. You've pivoted away. You've embraced the death and you're available to experience resurrection life now. Well, what about the people, I said we'd talk about this, what about these high caliber, big billboard kinds of sins and patterns and things that Peter's talking about in verse three and verse four? What of those people? Well, first of all, let's normalize it because those patterns may resonate with some of you. You might be like, whoa, that's last week for me, all of it. And some of you might be like, well, that doesn't relate to me because I've never done any of those things. Never experienced um, any of those things. Um, kind of debauchery, the downtown scene and, and um, sexual casualness and drinking parties, which is what the word orgies there means, and carousing and detestable idolatry. You're just like, can't relate. That's not me. But the root of those things is the same root that's beneath more respectable, I should say, uh, sin patterns that we tend to respect a little bit more. They're not as stigmatized. Maybe they're more familiar um, to you. Like that in the scrolling that I mentioned, we're just so bored with life. We just need a little hit, a little um, a little excitement. And four hours every day later, we're like, where's my life going? I'm with you. Same route. Same route. Beneath the party life, the downtown life, the sexually casual life, the scrolling life, the bored with God life, the half committed life. Here's the root. Dorothy Sayers, an old British author, said this. She's talking about the big billboard stuff, but notice the normalness in it. Notice the root that's beneath our desires that pull us off. The mournful aspect of 20th century pornography and promiscuity strongly suggests that we have reached one of those periods of spiritual depression where people go to bed because they have nothing better to do. We have settled for such, we have settled for such a low view of life that we're just spectacularly bored with everything. And our best attempts to entertain ourselves even fall flat. And we just go to bed because we're, we're bored. We're filled up with whatever we've been using. And she goes on after that a little bit later to say, this kind of spiritual depression produces, in pe produces people who believe nothing, enjoy nothing, hate nothing, find purpose in nothing, live for nothing, and remain alive only because there's nothing for which they'll die. 
there's nothing worthy of their lives and they know it. So they're alive by default. They're alive because there's nothing worthy of giving their lives to. There's no self-denial because nothing's come along beautiful enough to attract them and draw them in. And this is the implosion that happens when creatures made by a creator resist him and mistake the pull to the right as normal and veer off and crash. That's the telltale sign of a person who doesn't know why they're alive. These things he mentions in verse 3, it's the telltale evidence of a person who doesn't know what they're for. It's the telltale evidence of a person who's cosmically bored. Peter says, be alert, be aware. Now I want to contrast this as we, as we begin to, to wrap this up. I want to contrast that aimlessness, that meaninglessness, that boredom, that unwillingness or inability to give yourself to anything truly meaningful. And so you settle for counterfeit missions, counterfeit camaraderie, counterfeit intimacy, counterfeit exhilaration and joy. Contrast that life with the fruits of repentance of those who are giving themselves to or are struggling to give themselves to veer back towards God, to, to respond to these calls to course correction from God. Look at the last paragraph. I'm not going to read all of this. I just want you to glance over it. Look at how fruitful, look at how much direction these people have. Look at how much meaning bathes everything that they do. Look at how much intentionality characterizes their lives. Look at how other people benefit from their lives, not just themselves. It's just this hodgepodge of other people and God, other people and God. Offer hospitality to each other. So repentance isn't just stop sinning. Repentance is let's get busy living as you were made to live. So open up your home or open up your life in hospitality to those who are isolated and feel like they're on the outside looking in. Peter says, let's get busy living. Let's get busy praying that dialogue between you and your God who loves you. Your prayers are like incense in his nose. He loves the smell of your prayers. Peter says, let's get busy living. Let's get busy praying again. Peter says, love each other deeply. Let's get busy loving each other and figuring out how to do that deeply. That requires some thought, some practice. And he says we should use our gifts. So about a month ago we talked about this. He said, look how practical he is. Repenting and following Jesus looks like using your gifts in service to other people for the glory of God. Look how your life is now beautifully about another, about God and about other people. You've been liberated from you. Slavery to self. It's a very refreshing thing. Well, I want to I end here um, for all of us. Every single person in the room, from me to, to the last row, has to ask this question. How do we get there? How do we get to that last paragraph? Because whether it's the big billboard things or the other things that I mentioned, um, everybody's implicated. Everybody feels the pull. How do we get there? How do we get back? Um, here's the answer. The gift of repentance. It's a gift. It originates in heaven. 
And if it's a gift, it implies a giver. And a joyful giver who loves to give the gift of repentance. Here's what I've been thinking about lately. I hope this stays in your mind for a long time. When somebody comes and calls you to repent, which, let's bring it down to earth, if if your roommate is concerned about you, maybe your roommate says, hey, dude, what's up with you lately? Why are you, you've changed, but not for the better. Like, what's going on? How can I help? Like, this is not okay the way that you're living. The decisions you're making, this is not okay. When somebody comes to you and calls you to repent, here's the hope in that. At least one person in the relationship still has a soft heart in the relationship. At least one person in the relationship still wants the relationship. At least one person in the relationship is still on speaking terms with you. At least one person in the relationship is willing to move towards your darkness to help free you from it. At least one person in the relationship wants your heart, wants to connect again, wants a future with you. Is that hopeful? Because we can think about a call to repent like this huge uh, imposition or buzzkill, like, oh man, repent, come on. Like, okay, I'll stop, do that, start, do that, I got it. God is here, nose to nose with you. And from his word, he is calling us to get our hands on the wheel and come back to him, which implies he is there on speaking terms with you with a soft heart towards you, interested in a relationship with you, fighting for a future with you. And that's why it's a gift, and that's why there's hope and repentance. He's there. And he's talking to you. As long as you're alive, he's calling you to come to him. Even as for the seventh thousandth time in the same way, he's still there. And he's saying, I'm here, I'm talking to you. Come on, come back to me. Put your hands back on the wheel and come back to me. Here I am. So I want to ask you just practically as you, can t- as you wonder what to do with all of this, if repentance is answering God's call, his intimate personal call to you to come back, come back, I'm here, I'm with you. Uh, what's that going to look like for you this week? What's it going to look like to embrace the death that he's calling you to embrace, the self-denial that he's calling you to embrace, that you might taste life in him and restoration in him and resurrection in him? Um, There's a lot of questions that come out of that. What attitudes do you need to part ways with tonight? What grudge do you need to bury What habit, let's not think about a week from now or a month from now, but tonight, what habit can you pray for the grace to say no to? What friend who knows you can you ask for help in a particular struggle? And to say, I feel that tug so hard. I need another set of hands on the wheels too. What gifts can you double down using for the sake of other people? What are you good at that other people need your service in? Who can you show hospitality to? Who can you pray for tonight? That's the invitation, friends. It's real. It's very personal. 
and it's right from the word of God. And so it's an authoritative call to come back, but it is a sweet and tender invitation from your God. Let's pray. Jesus, it is only true that repentance is a gift and that it is a grace because of the gospel. Because you died on the cross, because you were all in with us, you were not half-hearted to us, you were not half in with us, but fully committed, you embraced the death that your commitment to your Father and your commitment to each one of us required, and you walked your way to your death. Not just that you would experience resurrection life, but that we would too in you. And so uh, let these not just be words and information tonight, make it come alive. Make it come alive. Pray in your name.